Well, good morning. This might be confusing because you might be looking up here being like, why are there two people on stage? Well, this morning we are uh, co-preaching. Uh, Pastor Colleen and I have uh, written a fun message together, and we're going to see how this goes. Um, we'll see. So let us know after service or don't. We need to, we need to project a little bit more confidence. Oh, we are going to rock this. This is going to be great. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, so there's this... Um, kind of thing that's going on in our, our world and our culture um, that you may have seen if you've been in coffee shops or anywhere near like a college campus um, or high schoolers that um, you get these stickers, right? And you put them basically on everything you own. Um, so like water bottles, laptops, things like that. So now when you go to a lot of places like restaurants or stores that you really like, um, they w- might have stickers either for purchase or that you can just take for free um, when you're checking out and you can take them and put them on your um, property, basically. And I remember that when I was a teenager and I had a, my, not my first car, but like the car that I was allowed to drive, Um, And I really wanted to put stickers on it, and my parents were like, no stickers, they depreciate the value of the car. Very practical, I see some nods, you all know, that's what happens. And so when I like grew up, I was not allowed to put stickers on things. So when this started happening, I started to get a little bit nervous about like, well, what stickers do I put on things? Like when I bought my own stuff and was like, I could put a sticker on this, I started to wonder what people would think of me based off my sticker choice on my water bottle or my computer. So it took me, I've had this laptop um, for like nine or ten years, and it took me until this last fall to put stickers on it, um, because I really wanted to put stickers on it, but didn't know how to like, what person do I want to project because I am in coffee shops a lot, right? And so when you're in a coffee shop, your laptop is open and people are looking at your stickers. What kind of like, what kind of persona am I projecting with my stickers, right? That's literally the thought that would go through my head. And then at one point this last fall, I was like, forget it. We're putting stickers on. Who even cares? Um, but these are the stickers that I have so far chosen. Granted, there's only four. It's not covered. We're still working on it. Um, But things that I really care about or places that I want to remember. So I have a sticker that says people matter because, you know, people matter. That one shouldn't have to be explained. Um, This uh, bearded guy, there's this really cool candle shop in uh, South Minneapolis called Frosted Beard Candles. And they create candles from, like, book uh, ideas. So they have, like, Harry Potter ones and uh, Lord of the Rings, other things. And it's just really cool. And they have stickers that you can, like brand yourself, but he just looks like a cool bearded dude, right? I got a Covenant Pines, obviously. Um, I got a roastery from Colorado that I really like called Huckleby Roastery that uh, some friends and I went to as uh, we used to have this tradition of getting together every New Year's Day um, and talk about what the next year of our life would look like. And so that one year we did it there and I like the prettiness of it. Um, a place in Grand Marais that I went to after my first Boundary Waters trip that I felt very celebratory that I made it through the Boundary Waters. Right? Because that alive, alive. Right. Alive. alive. Yeah. Like, I did it. Um, <laughs> and I didn't die. Uh, so those are the things that are on, uh, on my computer nice. and my stickers. And I was on um, Bethel's campus this week, and I can attest to the fact that pretty much everyone had stickers all over their laptop. But mine are on my water bottle. Um, And I have this one that I actually stole from my daughter that says, be strong and courageous. 
Um, so that's my sticker. I have this one that's Minnesota, and it has, um, well, trees and a moot. Is that caribou? It's, this is from caribou. That's why. That's what it is. <laughs> I'm from Chicago, friends. I'm still, still working on this. Um, and this other one, you can't, it's hard to see it. It says, oh, for fun. My roommate in college, um, when I came up from Chicago to go to school, she always said, for fun. And that was my, like, I am not in Chicago anymore. Like, this is, um, and Patagonia, because I'm a fan of anything that keeps me warm. So that's, those are my stickers. But we want to invite you for just a moment to think about what might be on your sticker, what might be on your water bottle, what might be on your laptop. Think about the things that, you see as those things that represent you, those roles that you play, those places that you frequent, that there's just a part of you that identifies with them. Take a moment to think about that. So, when I first came to know Christ, I was a teenager in high school, and I gave my life to Christ at my youth group's uh, retreat. I was a junior in high school. And I remember um, after the, afterwards, my youth pastor would always tell us that we were made in the image of God, right? We were created as an image of God. We reflected God in the world. And I remember being really confused by that notion. I remember thinking okay, you're telling me I'm an image like bearer, that I bear the image of God, but you're also telling me that God is invisible. So how does that like work in my brain? Also, you're telling me that all of us are reflections of God, and I look around the people in my world, and none of us look anything alike, and that's not really how like mirrors work. And so when you're telling me that I'm a mirror reflection of an invisible God, as a 16-year-old, I had no idea what that meant. And I really struggled with it because in reality, the people that I went to youth group with had grown up in the church. They had years of VBS and mission trips and small groups and Bible studies, and so they knew the right things to say and do, whereas I didn't. They knew when the, our youth pastor would stand up and do sort of a call and response kind of thing, or even just reference a Bible story that to me seemed really obscure and to everybody else was like, oh yeah, that story, that comes in Exodus, insert chapter here. I never felt like I fit with the group of people that I was in. So how could I be made in the same way as everyone else around me if I never felt like I fit? And the more that I grew in my understanding of Christ and the more that I grew in my understanding of who I was, the further away I felt from the church community. Most of the time, I was the only person of color in any room. Being a biracial woman in a world that was mostly white, that was mostly male, becoming a youth pastor, going to a seminary that even though our denomination has been ordaining women for 40 years, my class was still 80% males. I didn't ever fully understand if we're all reflections of God, if we're all mirror images of an invisible God, why do we all look and act and think so differently? I didn't quite understand what that meant. And as I grew in my own understanding of the, the phrase image bearers and image of God, I started to understand that it wasn't necessarily a mirror reflection. 
Because in all honesty, when we say that we were created in the image of God back in Genesis, they didn't have mirrors back then. They didn't have photos back then. They didn't even probably really have paintings back then. They didn't have a way to physically describe a um, body other than using their words. So when we talk about what it means to be an image bearer, when we talk about our, our bodies, it's not quite what the original writers of this phrase meant. So I land in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, which is what was read earlier by our youth, um, to be able to fully understand what it means to be an image bearer. So hear these words again. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now in the, the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul is writing um, to the church in Ephesus and he's talking about the difference between being Jewish and being a Gentile. And when he's referring to um, the, this difference, he's also talking about looking back at the Exodus story when the Israelites were first freed from slavery. And he's talking about how when they wandered through the desert, there was a cloud of smoke and a pillar of fire that marked them as God's chosen people. And even when Moses would go up to the mountain um, to hear from God, a cloud came down, a cloud of smoke came down to say that this is God speaking to Moses so that the people would know that Moses was a chosen person who was able to speak for God. And that is the idea that they're giving, that Paul is giving here with being marked with a seal. That the new covenant that Jesus brings about, that Jesus brings salvation to us, and he marks us now with a seal. And it makes me think of a wax seal. How you uh, melt some wax and you put a stamp into it. Students, you may have never seen this before, and I'm so sorry, but I hope you have, because they're really cool. I hope you have. I honestly do. Um, but you're, you're molding the wax with this seal. And being marked with a seal means that you are, you are different, you are chosen, you are bearing a specific mark. People who have um, wax seals that they use to write letters usually have their own um, special, like their initial or something on the seal that means it's theirs. We are marked with God's specific seal. Yeah. We are marked by the Holy Spirit with God's seal. And so when we bear the image of God, we are bearing the seal of God on who we are as a person. It is a permanent and unchanging promise of the inheritance of the world. Amen. <laughs> I feel like we should just sit in that for a moment. <laughs> As Alicia and I were talking about this this past week, it made me think a lot about how we form our identity. And it's something that we often don't give a lot of thought to, right? It's just something that happens over time. But I wanted to just take a minute to break that down for us, how we form our, our identity, because as people that are learning to follow Jesus, this becomes really important. Because when we get to the heart of it, identity is about having a sense of self, having a sense of self, and a sense of worth, having a sense of worth. Your sense of self is to have an understanding of who you are, something that is kind of the core of the core of the core that despite whatever situation you enter into, that self is the same. 
And then secondly, a sense of worth, a sense of value and confidence in who you are, that you feel significant. And these two concepts are really important in thinking of identity, but it's even more interesting to think about how these things are formed over time. And here's the thing. I mean, every culture has a way of doing this process of identity formation. We communicate this not through like books and bullet points, but we communicate this through songs. We communicate it through slogans and symbols, hence the stickers on the water bottles and laptops. Um, And these ideas and these images are just presented to us as self-evident, like this is the way things are. This is what's really important. This is what we value as a culture. And so as we live and move and grow up, we decide to accept certain things and then reject other things. Here's the thing. We are all looking for ways to name ourselves. We are all looking for ways of identifying ourselves to be known in the world. And that is not wrong. That is not misplaced. That's a part of how God made us and what it means to be healthy. The question becomes who or what we seek to do that defining. Lately, I've been reading through the book of John, and as I was thinking about this Ephesians passage, and as we were talking, I recalled when John chapter 10, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep, they know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. Now, it's actually a big insult that Jesus calls us sheep, and we don't have a whole lot of time to get into that, but sheep are pretty stupid animals, right? Um, But he's defining his relationship with us. I'm the shepherd. You are my sheep. You know me. You know I'm going to protect you. You know I'm going to look out for you. And I know you, and I know you by name. In Isaiah, it says this, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. And our culture backs away from this idea that someone else names us, that someone else from the outside gives us our identity. We find this generally as a culture oppressive and limiting, In traditional culture, I mean, think about this for just a moment. In traditional culture, your sense of self and your sense of worth, they were embedded in a community. It was not individualistic, but you lived in a family that was embedded in a community. And so you had a role within your family and oftentimes within that broader community through your job and your work. And so your identity and your value was defined by a giving up or laying aside maybe your aspirations or goals if you even knew to like think that way and instead taking on the role that you had within your family and community. Value and honor were given to you as you took on that role that was often prescribed for you. You are defined often in terms of your family relationships and then your broader community. Now, Western culture stands in stark contrast to this. Um, In our culture, the way you find yourself, the way you form your identity is instead a journey inward, right? You look inside of yourself for your dreams and your hopes and your vision of the future. You are not told this from the outside. No one else does this for you, but it's a process of inward discovery. Think about the question we ask kids when they're little. What do you want to be? when you grow up. 
And this question and then a bunch of other questions that become cultural reinforcers set us on this trajectory of self-discovery and self-motivation, self-identity. You identify these dreams and hopes and then you work towards that goal. You get out there and achieve it. My family over Christmas watched the movie The Sound of Music. I think of those lyrics, climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow until you find your dream. Right? Sorry to get that song stuck in your head. But remember, it's also sung by a woman who has taken vows within a community, and now she's being told to leave the community to go find herself. Right? And so just in summary, traditional cultures, it's self-denial for the good of the whole community. And our culture is about this journey of self-discovery. And then you go out and through self-assertion, you get it done. And here's the thing. I just want to give you a couple points this morning because I think this process of identity formation is not the whole story. It is not the whole story. And this is where, as Jesus followers, it's important to understand this because we're choosing a third way. We're choosing a third way. The first is this process of identity formation, it's unstable and it's incoherent. I think we all know this is true, that oftentimes we feel two completely different things towards something. Or we think two different things about something. There was a New York Times article back in 2015 that talked about the importance of individuals having a durable core, a center that in every situation is the same. But oftentimes when we base our identity on what we think or what we feel, that changes. Louis Smedes once said, he wrote an essay on marriage, and he said, my wife has been married to five men. All of them were me. Right? How many of us can relate with that? And then he goes on to say, what bound all of these together were the vows that he made on the day of his baptism and the vows he made to her on the day he married her. I mean, if we look at our identity, friends, think back to what you were like maybe when you were 30. I know not all of you can relate with that. Think back to what you were like when you were 15. The things you talked about, the things that you loved doing, what you wore, Friends, I would have been a dolphin trainer, (laughs) right? That was my grand aspiration. (laughs) We're unstable, friends. This cannot be the whole of our, our identity. The second thing is, this type of identity formation is crushing. You know, we look back at those traditional cultures that were often labeled as very suffocating, but it didn't have the same pressure that we have today. You've got to decide who you want to be and what you want to do, and then you've got to get out there and you've got to get it done. You've got to achieve it. It leads to an incredible amount of anxiety and depression. We see the suicide statistics. It is having an impact. It's a lot of pressure, and the irony is that we think that this makes us free from guilt, that this gives us a sense of freedom when instead it becomes crushing. I think of the movie Chariots of Fire and the track star Harold Abrams who was going out to run his race and he was looking at the track and he said, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. 
And the fact is, when we look at other things to achieve our identity, we think that's freedom. But the experience of generations that have grown up in our culture is that it is crushing them. The last thing is this. Timothy Keller states, any identity that is achieved rather than received has to be excluding. And this form of identity formation is excluding of others. Because often we look at other people and we minimize them and we marginalize them and we label them in order to feel like we are better. In order to take on our identity, we also put identity upon other people. C.S. Lewis was known to write this, we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Friends, as we think about how we do identity formation, it's unstable, it's crushing, and it's excluding. And the fact is, we cannot name ourselves we cannot bless ourselves. We need someone else to do this work for us. We cannot do it on our own. But what kind of person should this be? I come back to that John verse in John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, my sheep know me, and I lay down my life for my sheep. The way we've done identity formation is not right. The way the traditional um, view what did identity formation was not right. The only way that is right is God's way. Romans 8 is a very familiar passage, but I want to read it in uh, the message because I think it just adds some language that's a little different. So Romans 8, 29 through 30 says this in the message. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then, after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. God knew that our formation needed to have a permanent nature. God knew that we would have a world that would want to shape who we are and say who we are. God knew all of this from the beginning, and so what he did was in our very DNA, and the very personhood of who we each individually are, he put a stamp a seal, a mark, however you want to say it, but he created us to be image bearers of his son, his son that he sent to restore humanity, to create a new covenant, to show the world who God was in the only perfect revelation we could ever have. He gave us his son. And from his son comes the first line of a restored people, and we fall in that line. When we fall in that line, when we allow that mark to be bore on our souls, on who we are as a person, we have our permanent identity. We have the perfect identity formation in recognizing that we are first and foremost 
created in the image of Christ, created in who Christ was to be in this world. That is where we find our identity formation. And because we have that, because we have this imprint on our life, God now gives us a job to do, right? Um, And he invites us to rule over the earth. And we see this from the very beginning of scripture in the book of Genesis when it says, God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. Not only does God create man and woman in his image, but he gives them a task. He gives them work. And he does this throughout the biblical narrative. To Moses, he gave leading the Israelites out of captivity. To Joseph, saving a people from a famine. To Saul, he gave a crown. To Solomon, he gave building the temple. To Noah, a flood. To Esther, the saving of the Jewish people. To Sarah, he gave a child. To Nehemiah, he gave a wall. To Deborah, he gave a battle. To prophets, he gave vision and dreams. To Abraham, he gave a promised land. And in the New Testament, we read Jesus giving his great commission in Matthew, ascending of the church, of all of those who follow Jesus, to now be about this task of making disciples. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Friends, being followers of Jesus means that we're about being disciples, being followers who then make disciples. And the same invitation is being given to us. And every church and every generation will have to wrestle with how they respond to the opportunities and the challenges of their day. They can only learn from the past and they can only envision the future, but the reality is where is God working now? And how will I and how will we represent him and bear his imprint, his image to the world? I want to read you this little bit of lengthy quote from John Stott, a pastor in London. And he wrote this um, essay, Issues Christians Face. And he said this, Our Christian habit is to bewail the world's deteriorating standards. Anyone guilty of that? I know I am with an air of rather righteous, self-righteous dismay. We criticize its violence, its dishonesty, its immorality, its disregard for human life and materialistic greed. The world is going down the drain, we say with a shrug. But whose fault is it? Who is to blame? Let me put it like this. If the house is dark when nightfall comes, there is no sense in blaming the house. That is what happens when the sun goes down. The question to ask is, where is the light? Similarly, if the meat goes bad and becomes inedible, there is no sense in blaming the meat. This is what happens when bacteria are left alone to breed. The question to ask is, where is the salt? Just so, if society deteriorates and its standards decline until it becomes like a dark night or stinking fish, there is no sense in blaming society. That is what happens when fallen men and women are left to themselves and human selfishness is unchecked, the question to ask is, where is the church? Why are the salt and light of Jesus Christ not permeating and changing our society? Similarly, in uh, in his commentary on Ephesians, N.T. Wright says this, At the moment, therefore... 
The people who in this life have come to know and trust God in Jesus are to be the signs to the rest of the world that this glorious future is on his way. When we think about the promise that we have, the inheritance of a renewed and restored world that we have in the second coming of Jesus, we have to know that we are therefore signs of that coming world. That as the people who bear his mark, bear his seal in this world, we are able to bear witness to what is to come. And that gives us responsibilities. We have been given a world. There are things that are happening in the world around us every day that we have no control over. But there are things in our world that are happening that we do have control over. And you only have to look as far as the news to understand that our world is broken and that our world is complex. There's no one way that is right or wrong to do anything. There's no way to be able to tell what is the best way forward for any group of people. But as bearers of the image of God, as people who bear this mark, we have to ask ourselves, what do we do with this world that we have been given? What do we do with this interaction that we've been given each and every day? Every day we choose how to interact with the world around us. We choose how to interact with the media, with the news, um, with the people in our everyday lives, with our teachers, with our classmates, with our coworkers. We make those choices. And my question for us today, friends, is how are we making those choices in light of being bearers of his image? In light of knowing that if we identify ourselves with Christ, that we are then showing that bear, that seal, to the world around us. What does that need to look like? What responsibility do we have when we're reading the news, when we're trying to have a conversation with somebody who may or may not agree with us? When we think about the world in a broader sense, racial inequality and inequity, gender pay gaps, abortion, creation care, all of these things in our world have a heavy weight. I see the deep breaths as you even think about these words that I've said. Sexual harassment and the Me Too movement, when we think about how we interact with these things that are happening, what does it mean that you bear the seal of Christ? What is your responsibility in these conversations, in these worlds, in these Facebook posts? What is your responsibility as a mark of the God that created you. And the question that we just want to leave you with this morning is how do I bear that seal well? How do I look to Christ to bear that seal well? If we decided today to be intentional about representing Christ, bearing his image in the world, as we wrap up this morning, we want to invite you to think about how that might change your day. And just a few, um, for a few minutes, we just want it to be quiet in the room. And I'm just going to invite you into this process of just reflecting about your world. Whether you need to close your eyes so it shuts out everything around you, or you just want to take a deep breath and get your heart in a different place this morning. 
I want you to think about the places where you live your life. Your home, your work, your school, your neighborhood. The places where you spend your time, the coffee shops, the stores, the restaurants, the gym. Maybe there are faces that come to mind this morning. People you interact with or choose not to. Classrooms full of students, offices that are quiet or busy with energy and noise. What if these were the spaces where we represent Christ? Not just like his hands and feet, but his very image with power and authority and purpose. What would that change? Before you even get out of bed and your feet even hit the floor, what would you know you need? What would you be thinking about? What would you be consuming? Reading? Listening to? How would you treat your body? If you were representing God in the world, would you choose to spend time with him or try and figure it out on your own? How would you think about your words? Friends, this isn't about legalism. We don't need more rules about do this and don't do that. But as a community, we do need to take steps towards recognizing the role we have in our world to represent Christ in our daily lives with all the power and authority that has been given to us, not to be served, but to serve. Friends, we all need someone to name us, to impress upon us our identity. We can't do it, but someone does it for us. And that someone says to us, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me, and I lay down my life. Our identity this morning is not achieved, but it is received by the mighty God who laid down his life for you and me. And so, Father, we come to you this morning as your people and we recognize the identity that you have impressed upon us. And this morning we ask that this would not just be a head knowledge, but it would be a heart knowledge. That we would leave here with our chins lifted and our shoulders squared because we know whose we are and we know the purpose we step into. God, I thank you that we do not go about this alone, but we do it embedded in a community of people who is about the work of the kingdom. God, thank you. God, we pray that you would cultivate in us the things we need to bear that image well, and we recognize that when we don't and when we fall short, there is grace that covers. Grace upon grace, your word says. Father, would you make that true in our community? Would you call us out and call us forward and call us into the things that we need to do to be about your kingdom work? We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray, amen.